so much for your word. I thank you for the gift that it is to us. And I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts today to understand your word. I pray that you prepare our ears to hear from you and prepare our hearts and move in our hearts to apply your word to our lives. pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. All right, we're working through the book of Philippians as a church, the letter of Philippians. And just as a side note, I really encourage you in your week to try to read the letter of Philippians maybe once this next week. It's four chapters. Um, if you're working slowly, it would probably take maybe six or seven minutes per chapter. Um, and uh, so what is that? Hey, 24 minutes? Take 24 minutes of your life. I encourage you. It would be well worth it. This is God's word for us. It's good. Read it in one sitting as a letter written to the Philippians and preserved for you. And that will help you know where we're going and where we've come from as a church. Read it out loud, too, if you get a chance. That's how it was originally read to a church out loud, most of whom could not read in the ancient world. But they would listen, and they would read it again and again, and they would copy it and pass it on to other churches till the day we received it, 2,000 years later. So, last week, Brian preached from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. And there, the main idea, or one of the big ideas, was that we are to be citizens of the gospel, citizens of the good news that Jesus is the king. Brian talked about how Jesus is the king of the world, of the universe, and that Jesus defeated our greatest enemies of death and sin by his resurrection from the dead. And Jesus, our king, has become a, begun a work of new creation, a work he will complete when he returns one day. That's why we call ourselves New Creation Church. We are new creation because of what Jesus is doing and has done in our lives, and we have the hope of new creation in our hearts that one day he is coming to make all things new. He is the king. We are citizens of his kingdom. We follow or we are under his rule and reign. And the main emphasis of last week was live like Jesus is the king. Live your life like Jesus actually is the king that you say with your mouth that he is. Follow him. Live like a citizen of his kingdom, like he actually is the Lord of heaven and earth and will call all men to account. Now, in our passage today, Philippians chapter 2, you can turn there. I encourage you, if you've got a Bible, if you're able to follow along, uh, Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11, Paul starts off verse 1 with the word, therefore. And whenever you see the word, therefore, you should ask, what's it there for? Paul is saying, because Jesus is the king, because you are citizens of the King Jesus, because you've been connected with Jesus by faith, and be because he is your savior, right? Therefore, verse 1, therefore continue to live that way more and more. Continue to make Jesus your example of the type of mindset 
that you should have as a citizen of his kingdom. So you get that? Because he's the king that I talked about, because you're citizens of the gospel, therefore live more and more like you're citizens of the gospel. Live more and more like you're citizens of this thing called the new creation. And you're shaped by the good news that Jesus is your king. So this morning, we're going to be looking at that more and more section from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to chapter 11. And we're actually going to cover this in two steps. We're going to focus mainly on verses 1 to 4 today, and then next week, verses 5 to 11. Now today, we're going to see three things. In verse 1, we're going to look at the picture of a Christian. Verse 1, the picture of a Christian. Verse 2 to 4, we're going to look at the, the path to more joy. The path to more joy. And verses 5 to 11, we'll just unpack briefly the person of Christ. So three Ps. The picture of a Christian, the, the path to more joy, and the person of Christ, or the person to follow, who is Jesus Christ. All right, so first I'll read the text, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So, verse 1, we see what I'm calling the picture of a Christian. I'll read it again. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion... Now, the way Paul starts off this verse is a little bit interesting. Um, he starts it off, if, 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 and he's working for a then in verse 2. Um, so there's four ifs in this verse. Now, we talk like this, if you eat your supper, all your supper, and if you clean your plate, and if you go get your pajamas on, then you can have ice cream. Right? Or if you work hard all week, then you'll get a paycheck, right? But if you don't, maybe you won't. So we speak in conditional language using the word if. If these things are true, then this will happen. Now, I don't think, though, that what Paul is saying is if you meet all these conditions, if, 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 then you'll make my joy complete in verse 2. I think what's going on as, as we work through this passage is that Paul is, is basically saying these things, these conditions of verse 1 are already true. You could almost translate it since. So he's saying, if this is the case, and it is, if this is the case, and it is, you do have sharing in the Spirit, if this is the case, and it is, then since this is the case, keep making it the case. <laughs> All the more this way. That, 
Do you get what I'm saying here? If you're a member of this church, and if you're um, claiming to follow Jesus, which you are, and if you're uh, on Jesus' team, then keep living for Jesus. That's, that's kind of what's going on. If all these things are true, which they are, then live more and more. Make my joy complete. So we'll, we'll unpack each of these if things, and together they're going to give us a portrait of, of what Paul thinks is already true of these Philippian Christians, and what he would say is this, this is what Christian living is, Christian living 101. First, a Christian is someone who's encouraged in Christ. Do you see that there in verse 1? If there's any encouragement in Christ. Now, in the context, this, this word for encouragement here, it's, it's referring to this, this idea of comfort that comes from God that strengthens us to face any situation in life, no matter how hard. You encourage somebody when they're down, you strengthen them to face whatever is ahead. Encouragement coming from God, comfort that strengthens us. And the verses that Brian covered last week, this courage, this comfort, this encouragement, this strengthening, it, it came in specific focus. It was going to come to the Philippians through, and it was coming to the Philippians through suffering, through hardship, through facing trials for their claim to have faith in Jesus, persecution. But regardless of the situation, the idea is that if you're connected to King Jesus by faith, then you have a source of comfort for your soul that can strengthen you and steady your heart for anything in life, for any situation. So if you are sitting here today and you claim to trust the Lord Jesus, then you have every reason for your heart to be steadied, to be comforted, no matter what you face. In Jesus, think of all the comforts, the encouragement we have in Jesus. In Jesus, you have been justified by God. You have been declared to be in the right, in his sight. Regardless of what you've done in the past, no matter how shameful or embarrassing or foolish, you're right in his sight. Not because he's made the past untrue, but because he's covered you with his blood. And he said, not guilty. You're clean. Take courage, no matter what has been written about your story in the past. You are clean in God's sight. Take comfort. You're justified. You're righteous. No shame for those who are in Christ. Have you failed as a father? I know I have at times. What dad is perfect 100% of the time? Only our Heavenly Father. Have you failed as a mother? Moms make mistakes. My mom made mistakes. She asked for forgiveness for them. To think you don't make mistakes. Oh, you're just a good mom. You never make them. No. Moms make mistakes. 
Dads make mistakes. We fail. We fail our kids. Have you ever failed at a job? I have. My boss, what were you thinking? Stupid. Could go into stories, but let's just say I ruined a market truck once. I failed. And as a citizen of Jesus' kingdom, we can actually admit failure and not justify ourselves. We can admit failure because, and not be crushed with despair. Why? Because Jesus died for failures. He did not die for perfect people. They do not exist. Jesus died to cover our shame. We could spend a whole day unpacking comfort after comfort for being in Christ. We're children of God through Jesus. He's our Father, and He's a good Father. He's for us. He's not against us. No matter what we face, that is comforting. When you go deep in the love of the Father, when you lose everything and have Him, because at the end, when you're on your deathbed, He will be all you have. Whether you're 29 or 99, at the end of the day, we leave with nothing. But if you have him, you have everything. He's good. Steady your heart in the face of death, knowing that in Christ, like Paul says in Philippians 1, death is gain. That's comfort. That's encouragement in Christ He's working for our good in everything. He's with us always. He's always a sure and trustworthy guide. His wisdom will never let us down. He's a faithful friend. He's a patient teacher. He's a loving savior, a never failing refuge, an indestructible source of hope and joy. Eternal life is in his hands. With him is pleasures forevermore. And the more do we let our hearts believe this? The deeper we go into this, the more comforts we have in Christ. This leads to what Paul says next. Second, if there is any comfort from love. Here Paul's referring specifically to the consoling love of God that gives us consolation that quiets our hearts in the midst of suffering, of fear, of failure, of loss and shame, of grief, of pain, of persecution, shaming for following Jesus. You follow Jesus, you really believe that stuff? That's stupid. The love we find in the Lord Jesus is our comfort. It's our consolation. When Esther is crying inconsolably, what do I give her? Well, we'll try with her blankie first. We're trying to wean her of her pacifier, but, you know, sometimes you get desperate. And so we give her her comfort, her consolation. Some parents maybe give them a bottle. Maybe just give them food. Baby's crying. Give it ice cream. Well, oh, it'd be my strategy, but Holly interferes. But of all these things, 
the best consolation for a child is love. The love of a mother. The love of a father. In fact, love drives ultimately the giving of good things to comfort our children. Why do we go give them their blankie in the middle of the night? Well, it might be so we can get more sleep, but <laughs> ultimately we love them. We don't want them crying in the night. Love consoles. When you're weeping, love is a hug from a friend. When you fall, love is the hand that lifts you up. And for the believer, Jesus loves us always. He is heaven's consolation for all of earth's suffering. We have no other place to turn. We have Jesus on a cross saying, I understand suffering. And I love you. And I'm doing this for you. At the end of every slammed door, crushed dream, excruciating conflict that you just can't seem to find reconciliation through, at the end of every devastating failure, we see Jesus with his arms open saying, here is love and it's for you and it's free. Console your heart with this. Cast your burdens on him. He's preparing you a new creation. If only you turn to him. Third, Paul says, if there's any participation in the Spirit. Many translations might use the word fellowship in the Spirit. The Bible teaches us that when you and I trust Jesus, he puts his Spirit in our hearts as our comforter, our keeper, our guide, our friend. His presence is in us. We participate or we share in the spirit of the living God as Christians. And what's more, we share in his spirit together. And that's Paul's focus here. We are sharers or part, we have participation together in this Holy Spirit of the living God. And because we are participants in the Spirit, we all experience the joy of being family because of the Lord Jesus. We have the same Lord. We have the same baptism. We have the same Spirit. We are one family, one team, you could say. You ever heard of team spirit? Man, they don't have much team spirit. Well, the, the team of the risen King Jesus the people of the risen King Jesus have the same spirit. The same spirit. We all have our own soul, our spirit, the human spirit. And there is a mysterious union that God creates between the spirit of a believer and his own spirit when we become saved, when we put our faith in Jesus. We don't understand exactly how all it works, but boy, I can sense the spirit in my life. So many times. Convicting of sin. Where did that come from? Why do I feel guilty here? Well, it's the Spirit knocking, saying, turn your heart to the Lord. And the comfort we face when the Spirit is in us 
He comforts us with the comforts of Christ, and he gives us the sense of being one, because we truly are one. If you have the same spirit as Jesus, which believers do, then we should have the same mind as Jesus, the same mindset. We want to think like Jesus. That's the goal of the Spirit in us, is to get us to think like Jesus, to live like Jesus, to love like Jesus. Not create clones of Jesus, but to create people who, with all our unique personalities and character, strive to live the life of Christ, to live like Jesus, to talk like him, pray like him. We'll see this in the verses to follow, but I want to look first at the the, the fourth thing Paul says, if there's any compassion and mercy, compassion and tenderness, the idea is mercy here. Christians are those who have drunk deeply of the compassion and mercy of God to us. And so we are those who are first to show compassion and mercy to others. Compassion is a, a warmth, an affection, and a sympathy towards those who are lost and confused, suffering, hurting, weak, and scared. A compassion that flows from a heart filled with the love and compassion of God to us. Because we know that we have been shown compassion from God, we will then, if the spirit of the living God is in us, want to show that same compassion to others. And the same with mercy. Mercy is a love that reaches out to others to embrace them, regardless of whether or not we deem them worthy of love. He doesn't deserve that. Well, guess what? None of us deserve anything from the Lord. We're all rebels to our core. None of us have obeyed him perfectly. And yet through Jesus, we have received mercy. And so we become a people characterized by compassion and mercy. When our hearts were filled with the love, are filled with the love of Jesus, we want to show that love to others. That's what Paul's saying. If there is any compassion and mercy, and there is. So four things Paul assumes are true of those who claim to be citizens of Christ's kingdom. They've tasted encouragement that's found in the Lord. They know the comfort that comes from the love of Jesus. They've experienced it. They have union together with the Holy Spirit being their common bond. And they have tasted the compassion and the mercy of the Lord, and they show it to others. And so, says Paul, if you have these things, then, verses 2 to 4, make my joy complete. How? Well, he spells it out. And that's point two this morning, the path to more joy. So I'm going to read verses 2 to 4 for us, and then we'll unpack them. Verse 2, then, he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So the first thing to see in verse 2 is that Paul wants joy. He wants joy. He wants the Philippians to make him happy. 
okay? See that? Make my joy complete. Make my day, guys. Is that selfish? Does it sound selfish? Let's be honest. Make my joy complete. But I don't think it's selfish. And here's why. If you look back in chapter 1, verse 25, remember that Paul is wanting to go be with Jesus. He's wrestling with this state. I wish I could just go die and be with Jesus because that's far better. But you know what? I'm going to stay here. I'd rather stay here at the end of the day because I want to work for your progress and your joy in the faith. Do you see that in verse 25? Paul wants to give his life, everything he has, even though be, he's, he's tired, he's worn, he's been beaten so many times for the gospel, he's lost count. And he is in jail, he just wants to die and go be with the Lord, because it's better. But he's willing to stay, because he wants the Philippians to find more joy in the faith. So what's going on? I'm going to work for your joy, Make my joy complete. What's he saying? Well, basically, if you progress in the faith, if the Philippians progress in the faith, and if they find more joy in living by faith, in living by, as citizens of God's kingdom, then they will make Paul happy. They'll bring him joy. Paul's saying, I'll be filled with joy when I see you growing in the Lord and finding joy in Jesus Think about a parent whose heart fills with joy when they see their kid do the right thing. Is it selfish for a parent to use his joy or her joy to motivate a child to do what is right? Maybe and maybe not. Think carefully here. Is it selfish for a parent to say, obey me so that I'll be happy? Well, I think there's a way that this is selfish, and there's a way that it's not. Think of this scenario. Imagine I told my kids, listen, guys, if you want to make Daddy really happy tonight, then stay out of my way. Don't fight. Don't argue. Do your chores and be nice. Don't do anything to disturb the comfort of my home. Make my joy complete by being good little kids so that I can have a nice, happy evening doing what I want and don't have to have the hassle of disciplining you. Is that selfish? You better believe that's selfish. It's disgusting, actually. And yet, I've seen that in my heart. And I've seen it in others. Yes, it's good for kids to do all these things, to obey. But if my comfort is my motive for getting the kids obey because I'm just too lazy and unloving to deal with the hassle of discipline, then I'm ridiculously selfish. But imagine this scenario. Kids, you want me to be filled with joy tonight? Then love each other, because I love to see you love and care for each other. And that's what God calls you to do. And when you walk in love, you please Him. 
And guess what? You'll find joy as well. Your love for each other, your care for each other, will bring joy to your hearts as you enjoy playing in harmony and not fighting. And so what Paul's saying is basically what the Apostle John says in 3 John verse 4. John the Apostle says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. When you see your kids in fellowshipping and love, serving each other, it brings joy. Make Daddy happy. Make our Heavenly Father happy by loving each other. Same goes with pastors. Pastors of churches. You want to make our day as your leadership team? Love Jesus. Love Jesus. I want to see you rejoicing in the Lord Jesus. Trusting Him more. Why? Because you will be happier if you give your life totally to Jesus. Both now and for eternity. And when you're happy in Jesus, I'm happier in Jesus. And pray that for me as well. That my joy would grow in the Lord Jesus. Nothing thrills the heart of someone who loves Jesus more than seeing others grow in their love for Jesus. It's like when you've tasted an amazing dish that someone has prepared for you and you say, this is amazing. This is the best meal I've ever had. And you share about it with friends and they go and they taste it and they are like, whoa, that was amazing. It kind of makes your joy even more when other people rejoice in what you rejoice in. When they experience the glories of what you are glorying in. It, it completes our joy, C.S. Lewis said. Joy is complete when it is shared. Make our joy complete by loving Jesus more. And now... Paul unpacks the how behind making his joy complete. How can we complete your joy? Four ways. First, have the same mind. Do you see that there in verse 2? Make my joy complete by being like-minded. That obviously doesn't mean that we're supposed to be clones of each other. I love deer hunting. Most of you, not into it, right? So... Having the same mind doesn't mean that we need to love the same things. I can't stand golf. Carl enjoys a golf game once in a while, right? We have different minds. But we are also called to have the same mind. What does the same mind mean? Well, we really see it in verses 5 to 11. It's the mind of Jesus. But ultimately... Having the same mind means that we have the same outlook on life, the same purpose that Jesus had, the same ultimate goals. The same mind in the Christian life means that we're called to live and love like Jesus. And we want his mindset in life to be our mindset in life. We want to live like he lived. Ultimately, this mindset is a mindset that seeks the good of others above our own just like Jesus. Second, have the same love. What love? Well, 
He's getting there in a second. The same love is the sacrificial love of Jesus who humbled himself and died on a cross for our sins. Love each other the way Jesus loved you. Think the same. Love the same. Third, flee pride. Pride destroys like-minded living and Christ-like loving. Pride is the enemy of love. We see Paul say this two different times here. He doesn't use the word pride, but the concept is all over verses 3 to 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, he says in verse 3. In verse 4, not looking to your own interests. Now, selfish ambition and vain conceit or empty empty glory, literally, vain conceit is empty glory. They are the gas that fuels pride. Pride, what is pride? It's the posture of the soul that drives us to be first, to seek our own interests first, to be the highest, to be the greatest, to be the most important, the most significant in our world before the interests of anyone else. And so here Paul says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition. Anything at all. And ambition is the drive to do something, to succeed at something. And ambition is actually a really good thing. You ever met somebody who's like, man, that person is crazy ambitious. Ambition can actually be a good and beautiful thing. It's the opposite of apathy. Ambition and apathy are the opposite. And apathy is like, eh, not going anywhere, not doing anything, don't care. Ambition can be a good thing when it's used in the service of love. It's wonderful to meet somebody who's filled with a holy ambition to live faithfully on this earth with the time that they have and to do great things for the Lord and others. Knowing that sometimes the greatest thing you can do is do the least thing. Serve without any desire for recognition. But selfish ambition, that's the drive and the desire to do and accomplish something ultimately for me. Selfish ambition drives us to view everyone and everything around us as means to an end. If you're around a selfishly ambitious person... If you're around somebody driven by selfish ambition, you're going to end up feeling used at some point or another. You're going you're gonna to feel used as a stepping stone to advance their career or their dreams for their life or their self-image or their pleasure or their happiness in some way. Selfishly ambitious pastors use people like cogs in a, on a wheel to build their dream ministry. Get in the way and look out. Selfish ambitious, selfishly ambitious employers use their employees to make themselves more money, to build their empire on the bones and the pink slips of tons of people that have just gotten in the way. Selfishly ambitious husbands view their wives as a means to make them look good, feel good, and climb further up the social ladder. Selfishly ambitious dads insist that their kids obey them because disobedience is annoying and irritating and embarrassing and because obedience kids make them look good in public. Wow, I wish my kids obeyed like your kids. 
in public at least. You must be doing something right. Selfish ambition leads us to spend our money on ourselves first before we give any thought to how we could use it to serve others. It leads us to take jobs that put us ahead of others. It says, me first, unless putting you first makes me look good. And I can share about it on Facebook. Then by all means, you go first, so that I can be seen as great for making you go first. Selfish ambition can creep into prayers. We pray to impress others with our spirituality. It can creep into generosity. We give to others in order to be seen and celebrated as generous. It can taint our worship, our love, our play, our work, everything. It's the default posture of the human heart apart from the help of the Lord. We are all born with selfish ambition in our hearts. And only grace can drive it out. It always aims at one thing. Vain conceit. Your translations might say something different there. But literally, it's like the idea of empty glory. It wants people to give us the glory that we feel we deserve. But ultimately, it's empty. Because we're not made to pursue our own glory. We aren't made to put the greatness of our worth on display. We were made to reflect the worth of the one true God, to reflect his glory with everything we do, think, say. We were made not for mirrors, but to be mirrors, reflecting the worth of the glory of God. Look in the mirror, and the more you do, the smaller your world gets until you're a kingdom of one miserable and unhappy but turn your mirror to the glory of the sun jesus and you will reflect the greatest worth imaginable the greatest love imaginable to everyone you come in touch with let's turn our mirrors to the sun reflect the worth of the lord but ever since the fall of adam we humans, we have tried to live for our own glory. That's how we're born. We, we say, me first, my family first, my tribe first, my nation first, my wants first, my hungers first, my pleasure first, and on and on it goes. That's how we are wired. Think about history, human history, and the wreckage that pride and, self, and selfish ambition and empty glory have made of this world over the course of human history. Just think, think of it. You don't have to be a historian to kind of have an idea that billions and billions of humans have been jockeying with one another for the top since time immemorial. See me, notice me, bow before me, and yet everybody dies in the end. Every kingdom ever will come crashing down adding its bones to the bones of the kingdom that crushed it to rise up and take its place. You might be the best basketball player today, but you're going to die like the rest of them. It's all vanity if that's your goal, a chasing after the wind, vain glory. I might have killed a big buck yesterday, but somebody's always going to get a bigger one. 
right? It's empty if that's what we're chasing. As Paul says, we Christians are to have none of this. Don't seek your own glory. Don't put your own interest first. Flee pride. Flee selfish ambition. There's only one who truly deserves the glory and the praise. But what are we supposed to do instead? Fourth, pursue the opposite of pride. Pursue humility. See that in verses 3 to 4? Rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. This is the path of putting selfish ambition and empty glory to death. We seek to put others first. Can you imagine a world in which everyone was trying to outdo one another in showing love? A world in which the strongest people, the most powerful people, were the quickest to help the weakest. A world in which everyone thought of their, own, their neighbor's needs before their own. Where every husband recognized that he was the leader of his home, and that meant he was first to stoop and serve. That's what the new creation will be like. As people of the new creation, though, we are called to give the world a taste of what that coming world will be like in the here and now. We are called to put the needs of others above our own. Within this church, my prayer is that we would be a community of people, a church that meditates on ways that we can love each other on ways that we can put each other's needs above our own. And my prayer is that we would be a church that jumps to serve our community in practical ways. We were given the opportunity to serve in a really little way this summer, watering the flower pots on Main Street, and it was a joy to be able to do that. My hope and prayer is that there will be a lot more ways that we could do that. Little things that we can do, little things not that take the headlines. The Sentinel wanted to make a paper article about us watering the flowers. They're desperate for news, maybe. I don't know. But <laughs> I was like, we don't want the headlines. We don't want to be in the paper for watering the flowers. We just love Granville. We want Main Street to look pretty. We missed the trees. We, un we knew they had to go. Um, but let's be behind what replaces them. All right? We want to serve. Why? Why do we want to serve? Because Jesus did it first. And that's the third thing. Verses 5 to 11, we'll just look at it briefly, summarize it. I'm going to read it for us. The person to follow. Verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, and this is not in your translations, but I think this is the correct translation, verse 6. Because he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. We're going to cover these verses in depth next week. These are some of the most powerful verses in all the Bible. Seriously, I don't say that lightly as to who Jesus is. Jesus is greater than anyone you could imagine. He was literally in the form of God. If you're in the form of God, you are God. In the form of God. And because he was in the form of God, because he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Why? Because he already had it. Remember Adam back in the Garden of Eden? He and Eve, they tried to grasp equality with God. That's what's behind this. Jesus did not do that. He was not like Adam, grasping to be like God by listening to the words of the devil. No. Jesus was not like that. He was already in the form of God. He didn't think it was something to be grasped. He was equal with the Father. But Jesus, though he was the highest, verse 7, we see he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. He became the lowest. He became a human. He took on flesh and blood. The mystery of what the Bible says, the incarnation, or what we've called the incarnation, the infleshing of the Son of God. And he humbled himself by becoming a man. He humbled himself further by being a servant, by washing his disciples' feet. The king who made the universe cleans the toilet. That's kind of the equivalent. This is a servant's job, a janitor's job. And Jesus does it with joy. The very Son of God then was nailed to a cross, putting the whole world above his own interest. What a mighty example. No one has ever been or could ever be as humble and as humbled as our Christ because no one has ever been as high as he was or has ever made themselves as low as he was lowered. The highest became the lowest. Possessing all power, he embraced weakness so that he could save you and I. And that, what Jesus did, takes unbelievable strength. Humility takes infinitely more strength than pride. It took immeasurable might for Jesus, who'd never done anything wrong, to stay on the cross and call out forgiveness to those crucifying him and condemning him to doing things that he had never done. You want to see strength. Strength, true humility and greatness is staying on the cross and calling out love for your persecutors rather than giving way to rage and calling 10,000 angels and eliminating his enemies. He died to save he loved, and he loves now. Picture the big, strong man who gets punched in the face by a little weak guy. 
Which takes more strength for that bully? Or maybe he's not a bully, for that big, strong guy. Which takes more strength? Beating the crap out of the little guy? Or turning the other cheek? And getting him a cup of water? Which takes more strength? It's turning the other cheek. And Jesus, in his humility, he was great. Humility is true greatness. And notice that Jesus is actually exalted in the end. The lowest is raised up again. Because he humbled himself, God exalted him. God lifted him up. God raised him from the dead. God seated him on the heavenly throne. And one day, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and to the joy of all his people. God is a God who lifts up the humble. He loves to use his power and his might to bring down the proud and to exalt the lowly. God opposes the proud, Peter says, but gives grace to the humble. So I'd like to pray that God would make us a humble people now. Lord God, I thank you so much for Jesus, our amazing example. And I pray, Father, that you would humble us. Humble us as your followers, as moms, as dads, as fathers, as friends, as co-workers, as workers, that you would humble us. Father, that you would give us gratitude for your gifts, a gratitude that humbles us, a gratitude that reminds us constantly everything in me that is smart, intelligent, strong, healthy, is a gift. Everything good that happens to me is undeserved mercy, ultimately, because I deserved hell for my rebellion, and I've gotten grace through Jesus. Help us to be people in awe of mercy, overwhelmed with gratitude, and humbled that we have nothing that we did not receive. And I pray that we would be a people that had great joy in serving each other and serving others. And finally, Lord, I pray that you give us a longing to be like Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.